On this episode of This Week in Linux, we've got a bunch of new releases from a variety of projects. We're also going to be looking into the future with my crystal ball to discuss what is coming in the next versions of GIMP, GNOME, and KDE Plasma. And by crystal ball, I mean the projects issued roadmaps on their blocks. So, right. We've got a couple of distro releases also to discuss with FarinOS, Clonezilla, and a new offering from the Proxmox team. And then we'll discuss a call for help issued by the FSF to update their high priority list. And we'll talk about what that means as well. All that and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 125 of This Week in Linux, a weekly Linux news podcast, a part of the Destination Linux Network. I'm Michael Donnell, and if you're new to the show, this is the show that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take on the latest topics using my over 20 years experience as a Linux user. Before we get started this week, let's do a little bit of housekeeping, and I just want to give you a reminder that the 200th episode of Destination Linux is happening this weekend, Sunday, November 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and it will be streamed live so everyone can be able to join in and watch the awesomeness or the controlled chaos, whichever one you want to describe it as. That's up to you. But anyway, Destination Linux 200th episode celebration is happening this weekend, November 15th. This is a Sunday, and it'll be 1 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're watching the live stream, it's tomorrow. If you're watching the edited published version, it's whenever I happen to have gotten out the edit. I, you know, this weekend. But anyway, so we're also going to be doing this a celebration of the, the 200th episode. But in addition to that, it's not just the live stream of the show. We're also going to be doing a stream for Game Fest. So we're going to be doing a DLN Game Fest that is happening the same day, a few hours later from the start of the show. And that's going to be 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's UTC minus 5 for those who are not familiar with what Eastern means. So it'll be 4 p.m. Eastern time. So be sure to join us. We're going to be playing multiple games. We're going to be playing Xenotic and Tuxcart, which is available for anyone to join us and play those games because we have our own DigitalOcean servers that run their Tux, Super Tuxcart and for Xenotic. So any Anybody who has those games, which anybody can go and download them because they're free and open source. So if you were wanting to join us in for that, feel free to do so. And then later we're going to be doing uh, some other games, Shellshock Live and Among Us. And both of these games are more limited in the amount of people who can join. So those will be limited for just patrons. And if you'd like to join us, you can become a patron by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can become a patron on other things, a part of the Destination Linux network, including DOSGeek and Destination Linux and etc. So I'll have links for those interested in doing that in the show notes below. And also, if, you, if you're interested, you can check out the DLN store because we have dlnstore.com where you can get all kinds of merch, whether you want to get mugs, stickers, t-shirts, hoodies, and so much more. We're actually adding a bunch of new content, including more stuff to the Because Collection. If you're not familiar with what that means, the Because Collection is a collection of items that I created for the purpose of Because I Wanted To. So if you want to check that out, I have links to all of that in the show notes below. But if you want to do it right now, just go to dealinstore.com. Up first in the show this week, MUT 2.0 has been released. If you're not familiar, MUT is a command line email client, and it has a bunch of features related to being able to use the terminal to do the email management. Now, if you're into that, then check out MUT. It is a really good client for terminal-based email clients. 
So this particular release of 2.0 has been over the, por- the course of 25 years. They have now released 2.0. So it's awesome that they're celebrating 25 years. It is kind of weird that they've just now got to 2.0. That's the, that's the thing about versioning numbers. They kind of mean nothing depending on the project. And sometimes you could have like, like even the Linux kernel had like 2.6.35 or something like that. Like just ridiculous. Like I think it was like 10 years of time where the Linux kernel was set on like one version that seemed like it was a, an insignificant change, but it was huge changes in between. So version numbers don't really matter that much. So just in, in case you're curious, uh, but in some cases it does seem kind of odd when it has a 2.0 for 25 years now. So, or not, that's not how long it's had it, but they finally hit 2.0 is what I'm saying. Anyway, this latest release has new features, bug fixes, and a few backward uh, in- incompatible changes to upgrade upgrade certain features. So let's talk about some highlights. Uh, it now supports literal IP addresses in place of email address domain. So in case you want to send an email to instead of a domain, you can actually say something at and then do an IP address, which is interesting. I don't know who anyone who does that, but it's interesting that you can now. Uh, it, you can change the working directory using CD command inside of Mutt now. You can actually have automatic reconnect to IMAP on if there's an error or anything like that. So it'll re- it'll re- try to reconnect automatically if it has any kind of issues to preserve uh, unsaved changes in the mailbox and that sort of stuff. And uh, they also have added XO auth XO auth two support. Uh, and also they've added some patterns improvements for t- uh, tab completable stuff in the editor menu, as well as a bunch of other stuff, including some improvements to the uh, per- uh, protected headers uh, or for the header system to actually have protected headers for uh, the date from to CC reply to and et cetera like that. So lots of improvements to MUT. If you are interested in an email client that runs in your command line for the terminals uh, experience, then check out MUT. There's quite a few terminal-based email clients, but MUT has been around the longest, I think. So if you're interested in checking it out, I have links to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest offering from the Proxmox team, and that is a backup server. So Proxmox Backup Server is an enterprise backup solution for backing up and restoring virtual machines, containers, and physical hosts. This is based on the latest version of Debian, which is 10.6 Buster. It has the LTS kernel for 5.4 of Linux, and it supports a bunch of features, including incremental backups, which is allow you to have a reduced bandwidth and storage space by doing incremental or transactional updates and that sort of stuff. It has support for Z standard or ZSTD compression and deduplication. This allows you to avoid some redundancy and minimize used storage space. It also has remote synchronization across multiple locations and has client-side AES-256 encryption in the system, as well as being a, a, depending on how you want to interact with it, you can have a command line option or a web-based user interface. So whichever one you prefer is available in this release for the backup server. They also have support for in data data integrity with checking uh, out with a checksum algorithm for SHA-256. And they have support for ZFS on Linux for those who want to use it for volume management and, your, uh, and being able to store data because ZFS is a very good option for data storage. Also, this has full support for the Proxmox virtual environment Linux distribution. If you're not familiar, Proxmox is a team that creates multiple things. They're mostly known as the virtual environment system. So when people say Proxmox, they're usually talking about just that particular version, the virtual environment option. Uh, But 
that's it's they do more than that. So this is like a newer a, a new offering that is going to be a little bit confusing for people who are you know used to calling Proxmox just that virtualization system. But it's an uh, the virtual environment option is an open source server virtualization management platform, and it allows users to easily back up virtual machines with support with QEME uh, QEMU bit, bitmaps as well as containers. And the a team from Proxmox says, and here's a quote, Proxmox backup server ensures that protecting your most valuable data is quick and effortless. With strong encryption and methods of ensuring data integrity, backing up data is safe, even to targets which are not fully trusted. So if you are interested in having a backup solution or virtualization, or maybe both of them, check out Proxmox because now in addition to the virtual environment, you can also have a backup server. So I have links to both of those in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the GNU Image Manipulation Program, or GIMP. And this is about the upcoming uh, 3.0 release. This is actually sometime in 2021. We don't know exactly when. So this is essentially the beginning of the crystal ball uh, era of this episode. Uh, and this is kind of like, we're going to talk about the latest release that is a current beta for the like the development of the 3.0 version. So if you want to try what's coming in 3.0, then you can use these as a experimental aspect of seeing what's coming. So I'm not telling you you should use this as a default because it is a beta version. 2.99.2 is the second version for the development build of what's going to become 3.0. But if you want to try it to see what's there, there you go. So feel free to do that if you want to. They say that they, we, they, we want a rock-solid release of GIMP version 3 and need to pay a lot of attention to details. This is where we are now, and why are we releasing the first development version? So the the, the two, the, when I say it's the second, it's the second version they've made, but it's the first one that they've released as people to use. So there's that for you. Anyway, so the highlights for this release is that there's a lot of changes coming to GIMP, GIMP 3.0. And... This is really cool because they're improving the functionality of the interface. They're improving a bunch of different functionality of the editor, all sorts of stuff. So they're going to be replacing the toolkit for uh, the GTK2 toolkit that has been around for a very long time with GIMP. This will be the first version that has GTK3. So if you want to try it out, that's one of the things because the performance will be will be better, the flexibility will be better, and also theming will be actually improved because they are saying that it will let developers create new CSS-based themes for the editor, which is interesting. It will also make it so that the other the existing themes will not work, but that's that's because the GTK2 and GTK3 are not compatible with theming and that sort of stuff. But um, this is introducing modern-looking widgets, dialogues, and toolbars, and it makes use of comp- the, the client-side decorations. So that you can, they can change the way that the GIMP interface is much more, you know, unique in its approach where they can make it more compact and more modern. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I think that GIMP would be, um, you know, you'd be a lot of benefit to GIMP if they were to do that. And also they're making improvements to uh, new input devices. So they're going to have the ability to do hot plugging, which is, if you're not familiar, it's a way to have something already loaded and then you plug in a new uh, input device and it will be detected from that load. So most some things don't have hot loading, meaning that if you want to use the thing you just plugged in, you actually have to turn off or close whatever you're using and then reopen it so that it can detect it. And now GIMP 3.0 will have the feature of doing hot plugging, which is nice. 
there's also going to be improvements to high DBI support thanks to the GTK3 support, as well as another thanks to the GTK3 is better Wayland support, which is fantastic. And they're also going to be doing a new extension format system. So if you want, if for people who want to build custom stuff for GIMP with the extensions, like they've had a plugins for a very long time, and those were uh, really highly used in the community. But the plugin system wasn't very. It wasn't like ideal. It wasn't like plug and play. You couldn't just take something and. But you kind of have to make a big modification in order to make it work in certain cases, and that was an issue for a long time for users. But now this new version, which is the new extension, is called GEX, and it makes it easier to install custom brushes, splash screens, patterns, dynamic stuff, uh, plugins, all kinds of stuff. So that is very very cool. That they're adding that they're also adding render caching and code refactoring, which is like just I'm super excited for what GIMP could be in the future because I think that there is a lot of potential that GIMP has. Now it's not something I use because it's not it's not there yet, but it has potential to get there based on these 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 updates of this on this blog post. So if you want to learn more, I'll have a link to the 2.99.2 blog post from GIMP to learn more. Because they're there, I'm I'm pretty excited to see what GIMP will do in the future. I think there's a lot of potential for this this next version, and I can't wait to see how far they go to get to, to fulfill that potential. So, also just a quick note: if you want to try it yourself, it's actually really easy to do so because they have support for Flatpak. So, if you just want to install the Flatpak, you don't even have to get rid of your previous GIMP. You can still use it and also this version for the developer using the flat pack. So that's pretty cool. So I'll have links to all that in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud native apps. With app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It has support for multiple programming languages, including Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and Docker, as well as much more. So DigitalOcean also runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products. And this, this on their, their own infrastructure is using the DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free even better than free, you can get started on DigitalOcean's new app platform service with a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is some interesting news related to GNOME and their extension system. So we're going to continue with our crystal ball look into what's in the future of GNOME. And by crystal ball, of course, I mean blog posts where they tell you what they're doing. And GNOME 40, which is coming out in March of next year. So we are talking about it pretty early, but also this is very, very cool. And I want to talk about that. If you're not, if you haven't heard about the GNOME 40 change and like, because if you're familiar that GNOME 3.38 is the current version. So why are they going from 3.38 to 40? It's kind of complicated some of the reasons are, are kind of like mixed uh, experience between like the developers, you know, of the if the distros and like there's, there's a there's a little bit of drama around that. Uh, but if you like to learn any about if you like to learn more about that stuff and why they did the changing and whatnot, 
just check out the episode where we talked about that of This Week in Linux. I'll have a link in the show notes below so you can find out more about that if you want to. But let's talk about what's coming in the next version of GNOME, which again, March 2021. And, and there's a lot of new features and improvements to the app grid. There's improvements to the file manager, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, auto completion in the file manager loc- location bar, which is nice. But the thing that m- most most interests me and why I wanted to talk about of the and what's coming is because the future of GNOME is looking much, much brighter, especially because they're looking to reboot the extension system. Now, the extension system is a very fundamental thing to a lot of people because uh, there's a lot of features that are only available when using extensions, like having desktop icons or having a system tray or things like that, where you have to install an extension in order to get those features. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing to need to need extensions because that's the purpose of extensions to add changes and, and get improvements and that sort of stuff. But there are some issues with the extension system for GNOME, and that is there's it's unorganized for users. There's also kind of like where do you get the this extensions is kind of confusing for some people because when you go to the website to get extensions, you can install them from that website without having a tweak in your browser. Uh, so depending on what distro you have, you may or may not have that tweak built in. Also, there are like the GNOME software does have extensions, but you can't see examples of what it's doing and that sort of stuff, whereas the website does. So it's kind of confusing for users. They're trying to fix that, which is great. They're also going to be um, fixing the other issues on the development side because uh, compatibility with new versions of, of GNOME are kind of hit or miss. And in certain cases, the way it's structured sort of makes all of them miss because it requires developers to compensate before the next version comes out, which can be a hassle for developers. And there's also some testing and guideline issues that they're addressing. And I know know it sounds like I'm kind of being negative about it, but the reason why I'm telling you these things is because the extension systems currently have those problems. And the reason I'm excited is because the newest version with GNOME 40 is looking to address them all. And that is fantastic. So on the GitLab for the Extensions Rebooted repo, they say that Extensions Rebooted is an attempt to address the myriad of issues around the GNOME Shell extension ecosystem. Primarily, we want to build a process around how extensions are accepted into the extensions website and how they are supported. They also say that so the project contains a number of elements. So they're going to be talking about um, improvements for DevOps, improvements for centralization of extensions, and also changing some policies and requirements of how to get those extensions in the ecosystem. So... For example, DevOps, they say that building a container that will run GNOME Shell on a virtual frame buffer X11 server that will be deployed in a CI pipeline as well as an automated process that will be determined if an extension is working. So it allows, basically, if you're, you don't know what that stuff means, that's okay because it's mostly for developers anyway. And there you go. Uh, bring extensions as a part of the GNOME release process and provide early warning to extension writers that their extension does not work on the latest release. This is something that is a key to the point about the compatibility issues that GNOME extensions have. That there is something that people have been wanting for a very long time. And it has been, like the fact that they're doing it is just awesome because there it has been something that people have been requesting, being able to uh, get notified when there is an issue instead of just by default assuming there would be. Because if you're not familiar, uh, I actually used to maintain extensions for GNOME. I uh, Over the course of a few years, I maintained about 14 extensions in the ecosystem. And, well, it was kind of a hassle. 
especially back then. It has been years, so it might not be as bad then as now. But back then, there was an issue where when you updated GNOME, it would break the extension. Not that necessarily the extension was broken. It would just say that there's a new version of GNOME, and because that extension has not said, I specifically work for that version, it would break the extension. So if you updated your uh, your, your GNOME shell, you would have a broken extension set, and you'd have to update those extensions. And you really couldn't preemptively say that it works with the new version of the shell, because then you would create a problem where people would be updating it, and then it could actually break something more significantly. So you're kind of stuck in this weird realm of, is it compatible or is it not? And that issue um, created a kind of confusion for developers, for extension developers, that they are now trying to fix with this new rebooted system. And I think that is awesome because any time, like if you can eliminate any kind of barrier for whether it's developer barriers or the user barriers, that is always a good idea. So good on you, Gnome, for doing that. That is awesome. They're also going to be doing centralization for the GNOME extensions to the GNOME GitLab so that all extensions can be seen and tested on site on the GitLab itself. So developers are free to develop their extension on any platform they want to, but in order to get it into the new ecosystem, would be using, you know, push your code to the GitLab service for submission on the new site, which I think is a good idea because centralization would make it easier for the GNOME developers and the GNOME team to actually make sure everything is compatible and be able to do that early warning system stuff, which is very, very nice. Uh, also, uh, there's a new set of poli policies and requirements that will hold extension writers accountable for maintaining their extensions, including unit testing and making it possible to do it on their infrastructure with GitLab makes that a more viable thing for them to be able to do to make sure that the tests are performed and everything is working and just it just overall better for users, which I'm excited to see. They're also doing a lot of improvements overall to various other pieces of the extension system, uh, being able to improve the analysis of extensions to determine safety of the extensions, which is really interesting. Uh, I don't know exactly what their infrastructure is intended for that piece. They haven't uh, they haven't expressed that in the crystal ball yet, but I think there's a lot. The fact that they're working on that is just awesome. So if you want to learn more about this and what's coming in GNOME 40, I'll have links in the show notes below to find out more about the extensions rebooted system and what they're doing for it. Because I am super excited about it because I think one of the coolest things about GNOME is the extensions. The But also one of the most problematic things about GNOME is using the extensions. So if they address those things, I think there is a huge potential for GNOME and the user's improvements for just better user experience. And I'm excited for that. So if you learn more, I have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the last of the three crystal ball topics where we talk about what's happening in the future. And this is KDE Plasma 5.21 future preview for the features that are coming in the next release. This will be coming also next year, but we're gonna, I want to talk about it because there's just a lot of cool stuff that I'm super excited to see in the next version of KDE Plasma. And we're going to talk about something I'm the most excited. I'll save it a little bit for last, but let's talk about first. KWIN's desktop grid effect can now be configured to only activate de desktops on click rather than activating both desktops and windows. And also they have improvements to a new simpler redesign of the system settings for the audio volume, which removes some, some confusion about the multi-tab structure, which I think is going to be a, a lot better for average users who are trying to be like see how to use the different features in the audio thing. Because right now there was like a couple sub-tiers and they simplified it, which is fantastic. Uh, file and folders on the desktop can now properly 
properly be interacted with using a touchscreen, which is great because there's but previously people are used to something you couldn't do something people were used to. And now in 5.21, you will be able to do that where when you press and hold an icon, it will do like a little, a pop-up or give you like context menu. You'll now be able to do that with this next version, which is essentially emulating a right click function, which is really cool. Also improvements for uh, spectacle will like you can have um, just kind of like the recent documents. Every time you make a new screenshot will be activated that where so in case you accidentally close the application, you'll be easily able to get back to like the recent screenshot you made, which is the nice little polish there. And they also done some improvements to the system settings overall, which just makes it kind of like much more clean to use. And uh, the window rules for KWIN have got some improvements. And one of the things that I like is that they added the ability to do uh, negative positions, negative values, where the X and Y values for uh, the, the window rules per placement uh, was you could kind of do it, but you kind of had to kind of sort of compensate to make it work. And now they're making it much, they're making it work by out of the, out of the box. And I think that's fantastic. But I, let's get to the number one reason why I'm super excited about it. And I couldn't wait to talk about it. And I wanted to use the crystal ball to talk about it for this particular episode is that Breeze Twilight is coming in Plasma 5.21. Now, you might not be aware what Breeze Twilight is or maybe even what Breeze is. So let me explain. So Breeze is the name of the themes that are available for the default theme for KDE Plasma. By default, right now, it's Breeze, and then there's also Breeze Dark. Now, there's an issue with Breeze Dark in that, for, for me, I personally prefer Breeze Dark because I like dark interfaces. But unfortunately, some applications don't obey dark themes very well and create artifacts. Now, that means by default, you kind of have this interesting issue of it's better to have a Breeze uh, Dark for the panels and for the menus, and then also a breeze light for the applications to avoid any kind of artifacting depending on the particular application. Now, that's where Breeze Twilight comes in. And this is why I'm super happy to see them do this because this is a new global theme that combines the two values into one. So the dark appearance for Plasma, or the panels and the menus and the context menus, like I said, but also a light appearance for the apps. And together, that is Twilight, which is awesome. I am so excited to see KDE implement this inside of Plasma because there is, it's it's a design thing I think has been uh, missing for for Plasma for a while, and I think it will be it will make a huge improvements to the polish overall of Plasma. So I am just so excited that they decided to do this. Uh, Kubuntu has been using this for I think since 1804. And they've actually shown that a lot of people do like this approach. So I'm super excited to see that KDE is taking that, uh, that learning that information from Kubuntu's testing and moving forward into putting it into Plasma itself. I can't express to you how excited I am for them to do this. It's just awesome. They're also improving some stuff for like uh, smaller shadows on the inactive windows, more distinct colors for plasma pop-ups, improvements for the notifications in windows, and just a bunch of other stuff. When we get to the closer to the 5.21, I'll break it down more in what's coming because that we'll have a lot more like more solidified information about what is happening and that sort of stuff. But I just couldn't wait to talk about the Breeze Twilight because Plasma 5.21 adding that has made me so excited to try with 521. I might not even wait until 521 comes out before I start trying it because that's how excited I am. 
So awesome, KDE. Good job. Keep working on improving the awesomeness that it already is of Plasma. And I can't wait to see what happens next. So Plasma 5.21 feature preview. Lots of cool stuff. But I can't wait for Breeze Twilight. Uh, I probably won't, actually. Yeah. Okay, no. I definitely won't wait. I'm still going to get it when it's still in development. Whatever. I'm still going to do it. <laughs> so if you'd like to learn more about the next release of KDE Plasma 5.21, I'll have links to this blog post from Nathan Graham in the show notes below. Speaking of KDE Plasma, we also have a new distro release to talk about, and that is Farin OS November 2020 update has been released. So if you're not familiar, Farin OS is a distribution that is based on Ubuntu and uses the KDE Plasma a desktop environment, but also there's a lot of interesting stuff that Farin OS has in terms of, you know, kind of like experimental things of trying new approaches to a variety of different things. And it's just a really cool uh, thing to test out to kind of play with like what could be done with Plasma and that sort of stuff. And also the developer of Farin OS is also the person who uh, submitted the change for Breeze Twilight, which is fantastic. So if you want to check out some other cool stuff in Farin OS, you can do that with the link in the show notes below related to the November 2020 update. So in this new release, there's a complete new redesign of the default theme. It's a, there's a new dark look. It's also got new predefined accent colors. And there's also a new wallpapers, the new maximize icon, uh, customizations for uh, GTK2 and GTK3 uh, themes based on Adweta. There's also improvements for uh, a customiz- customized uh, Qt5 application style based on Adweta Qt, as well as a new font called Inter. And uh, also improvements for Calamares uh, and the theming and the overall usage of Calamares. And this one is based on Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. It has all the updates that 20.04 offers, like the 5.4 kernel and all the other, like the software updates and that sort of stuff. But also in addition to all of those kinds of things, there's also a new uh, Farin OS Tor app, which is kind of similar to the GNOME Tor and show in the sense that we talked about that in a previous episode, that it talk, it shows you like a, when you first log in on the first time you use it, it gives you like an, ex, like an experience kind of tailored uh, to how they want you to kind of, you, you know, l- learn and feel the flow of the desktop environment and the, and the OS itself. And that thing that is like every distro should do that. Every distro should have a tour that basically walks you through using the system and how it works, because especially if the interface is anything different from what they're used to, which is if it doesn't have the Windows paradigm pretty much. But if even if it does, it'd be still good because there's still going to be some significant changes. And I think that every distribution should have that. And I'm really happy to see that Farron OS does have that. There's also been improvements for uh, boot screen updates now shows the manufacturer logo, so it's more polished in that approach. Uh, also, the uh, Farin OS Classic has been discontinued, and if you're not familiar with what that is, Farin OS Classic was the version that was using the Cinnamon desktop. So previously, Farin OS was was a Cinnamon uh, Cinnamon based Linux Mint based type distribution, and they converted into using Ubuntu with uh, the KDE the Plasma desktop. And they and at that in that transition phase, they made the classic version, which was the cinnamon version. And now they have discontinued that along with discontinuing of 32 bit support because they kind of pretty much just inherited that with the uh, 2004 base. Uh, So that's actually good because 32 bit is kind of held back Linux for a while. So. I'm happy to see more and more distros drop it because it allows for more progress to happen and you know better performance for 
uh, the distributions that don't have to worry about making sure everything works on 32-bit, they can actually focus on optimizing for 64-bit, which is great. So Farin OS is a really interesting distribution and there's a lot of cool stuff to check out, especially with this latest release. So if you're interested in having uh, playing with a KDE, place, KDE Plasma based distribution and you want to try try one that actually is taking some you know steps forward into testing out new ideas and new configurations and all that sort of stuff, then check out Farin OS November 2020 update. I'll have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust, and you can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Password managers are a great way to have balance of security and convenience in using online accounts. So these days, every website wants you to create an account, and most people would want to use the same password because it's just easier to do that, but that's not very good security. The best practice is actually to create a different password for each account on every website, and that becomes obviously difficult to keep track with. But that is where a password manager comes into play, and Bitwarden is the password manager I use because it is 100% open source software. So you not only do you, you can you trust it, you can also look at the code to prove that you can trust it, and maybe you're not someone who could do auditing of code, but that's okay too because Bitwarden takes the money that they make from having this, you know, the, the, from the premium accounts and stuff like that to actually do security audits. They hire third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is as best as possible, and that is just fantastic. Another reason why I trust Bitwarden with my accounts because that they not only is it open source, not only do they let you self-host it, they also do security audits, and I think that is just awesome. So in addition to all of that, you get a password manager, you also get a password generator, you also get convenience over multiple devices, so you can use a, a mobile version, a desktop, browser plugins, and even the command line if you want to. And it has auto-filling of passwords, so you don't have to type any of the passwords in yourself. Just so many cool things. And like I said, you can get started by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN for free, but if you want to help support the company, you can also get their premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of, of encrypted file storage, two-step login, uh, login authentication with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo. Also, you get Vault Health reports, uh, one, a temporary one-time password authenticator storage and generation, and so much more. And all of this for only $10 per year. That's right, $10 per year. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started with your account. And if you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by getting that premium edition, especially since it's only $10 a year. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is a really cool project, and they have their latest release. It's called Open Razor 2.9. So this release of the 2.9 adds a lot, a lot of new features, but let's talk about first what this is. So for those who are familiar, Razor is a company that creates um, keyboards and mice and a bunch of other peripherals for computing. And they're a very popular company, but unfortunately, they do not have support for Linux operating system. That is where OpenRazor comes into play. So OpenRazor is an entirely open source driver and user space daemon that allows you to manage your Razor peripherals on Linux. Now, technically speaking, the keyboards and the mice should all be, they should all function. They should all work on the base level of being a keyboard and being a mouse. Even though when I'm saying that they don't fully support Linux, I mean they don't support it for their macros or the lighting effects or the colors or the different modes and all that stuff. But that is what OpenRazor does. It gives you support for the macros on the fly, lighting effects, the colors, the game modes, all kinds of stuff like that. And it works with a variety of different distributions. So if you have Razer equipment, 
uh, you should definitely check out OpenRazor to get all of those customizations because it supports Debian, Ubuntu, Arch, OpenSUSE, Fedora, and etc. It also has a scriptable, a scriptable API so you can control your device and create just about any effect you want via Python. So very, very cool. They also have added in this latest release, 11 new Razer devices are supported, like the uh, Razer Basilisk, the Razer Blade 15 Advanced, the Razer Death Adder, the Kraken, the Viper Mini, and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, their names are kind of ridiculous, but at the same time, it's kind of fun. Razer Blade is a fun name for a product from a company named Razer. So anyway... This is really cool. They've actually added some improvements for like uh, improving a battery, uh, low battery threshold uh, notifications and also improvements to just battery frequency control and all that stuff. Like they have done a lot of improvements for the latest release. And if you have any kind of Razer equipment, then you need to definitely check out Open Razer because this project is really cool because it gives you as like a ton of features that Razer themselves didn't give you. And if you if you happen to or if you happen to want all these different effects and all these different things, and maybe maybe you're switching from Windows to Linux, then it would be you know a good option because you probably you might already have these these devices, and this project making it possible to do all the extra stuff on Linux is just fantastic. So great work to the Open Open Razor team. Uh, thank you very much for doing that. I don't actually have any Razor stuff specifically because I knew they didn't have that support. But now that I know that Open Razor is a thing, I'm more, you know, willing to consider it now. So very cool. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Open Razor, I have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Clonezilla Live 2.7.0 has been released. We've talked about this on many occasions on this show. If you're not familiar, it is a disk cloning and imaging tool, and it also does partitioning tasks and stuff like that. But it is a live system to be able to do this. So you put it on a CD or you put it on a USB drive, and you can boot it into it to do disk cloning, disk imaging, and partitioning changes and stuff like that. And this, the Clonezilla Live latest release, has updated to kernel, Linux kernel 5.9.1. It's now based on the Debian SID repository of November 2nd, 2020. So that's specifically saying the date is because SID is an unstable uh, distribution repository. So it constantly gets updates and therefore it's, uh, by the way, unstable doesn't technically mean that it will, it's not, it's not stable in terms of stability. That's a different topic. But anyway, uh, this also has new tools and we'll give you a couple of the highlights. So for example, it's got a new tool called Gpart, uh, BLK tool, uh, safe copy, and UUID-Runtime. There's also some new options, as in you can do an option for not restoring the MBR. So when you create the uh, the image, you can add an option for dash uh, tac tac no restore MBR, uh, what allows you to kind of bypass that issue of doing the, uh, by basically Microsoft boot record. And the implementation of uh, Z standards has been improved for making it possible to have a res- an R-syncable sy- uh, parameter. Uh, Z- ZSD support for network cloning to compress the data has been done. And also there's a bunch of improvements overall. So for support for OCS live dev to create a recovery zip files that are larger than two gigabytes in size, because previously they were, the maximum was, was going to be a two gigabyte based on that particular type of file size and that particular type of file structure. So it's very cool that they're making that, that they're making these improvements. And it's always nice to see when uh, Clonezilla gets an update because Clonezilla has had like a it's a, it's a very well known 
distribution that's been around for a very long time to provide this kind of service. And I just like to, you know, give it some recognition for providing a solution for a very long time that I have used on many occasions. So uh, if you're interested in checking it out, check out Clonezilla Live 2.7.0. I'll have the link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some interesting news from the FSF or the Free Software Foundation. They're doing a call to get participation from the community about what to do with their updating on their high priority list. So the high priority uh, list for free software projects or the HPP initiative draws attention to areas of development and specific projects of strategic importance to the goal of freedom for all computer users, as stated by the FSF. They also go on to say, The HPP list helps guide volunteers, developers, funders, and companies to to projects where their skills and resources can be utilized, whether they be in coding, graphic design, writing, financial contributions, or activism. So the committee chair, Sean O'Brien, quotes about this statement saying that in the past year, we've seen the tremendous value of digital work, communication, and infrastructure during times of crisis. The high priority projects list sends a strong message that free software is paramount in all aspects of our lives, helping us to not only respond in emergencies, but to build a free and functional society. So this is an interesting thing. If you'd like to participate, you can let them know. Uh, I'll send you, I'll have a link in the show notes for the blog post that they talk about getting participation from the community. And this is basically to give your opinion about what they should have on their high priority list for the different projects. So this is something that they do every few years or so. The last time they did it was in 2017. And just a quick note, here's what they had on their list in 2017. And that is having a free phone operating system, having uh, decentralizing and federating cloud so users have more control, uh, drivers, free drivers and firmware, hardware designs, uh, real-time voice and video chat, kind of like sort of Jitsi kind of thing, and a bunch of other stuff. But uh, if you want to participate in doing that, they are looking for community members to send in their suggestions and ideas about the list for the committee to review by January 8th, 2020. So 21, that that's actually the time because that would be that would have been in the past. And that's not very good for an, an, a weekly news show to talk about something that happened a year ago, almost a year ago. Anyway, January 8th, 2021 is when the the deadline will hit for them to do the review. So if you would like to send in your your opinions and ideas and suggestions, I'll have a link for that all in the show notes below. And they say that they will be discussing this and having this this, this stuff published before the Libra Planet 2021 conference. So that's when they'll find out when the next uh, list will be solidified. So there you go. If you want to help participate in this, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. Also, if you are interested in subscribing to the podcast, we have an audio version that's available as a podcast and all of the podcast apps, so check whichever one is your favorite. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com. The Linux is Everywhere t-shirt is a shirt that I made that conveys the message that whether or not you know that Linux is there, it probably is. That's why it has Tux blended into the background to kind of celebrate the proliferation of Linux. Because it is everywhere, including space. So go to dlnstore.com to check that out. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com affiliates. 
And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And also, just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Also, this show is a global show with people watching all around the world, which is totally amazing. And I realize saying Eastern Time isn't that helpful for people not in North America. So I provided a link to a time zone converter in the description and show notes to make it easy for anyone to be able to convert it to your time zone. And also, to be clear, just so, you know, a quick conversion if it helps you, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern also is UTC minus 5. So there you go. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next time for another episode of your weekly source for Linux news.